So this week I received a call, as sometimes many of us do, from Rogers, and uh, Rogers proceeded to tell me that a couple of months ago I went over my limit on my Rogers bill. So they said, uh, so we were just thinking that what you could maybe do then is upgrade to another plan uh, that could give you whatever you wanted. You could use as much internet and data as you possibly want, and you wouldn't even need to worry about your usage. And I said, really? And they said, yes. And I said, well, how much more a month will I have to pay for this? And and thank you so much for calling and telling me. And, and she said, well, you'd have to pay probably another $15 a month, and you could receive as much data as you want. And again, you don't have to worry about your usage. And I said back to the woman, I said, well, here's the thing. You, I went over two months ago. I noticed that on my bill. And so last month, I tried to curve my usage. And guess what? Last month, I actually used less. So what I'm trying to do is use my phone less and less and less to show more self-control. And she was like, really? Because I'm sure she doesn't really get that response very often. What this reminded me of is just the way that our world is trying in every way with by the power and the word of Satan to like want us to want more and want us to not even have to worry about the freedom of having more. Just for a little bit more, you can do this and you can have whatever you want. And so this morning, that's just like really is on my heart that we would be a people that would not just swim in the waves of our culture to take on more of whatever the heck they want to offer us, but that we would be people that say, no, I've got to practice some self-control. I've got to say, no, no, I've got to swim against the current of things that are going on. I studied a little bit of, of these early desert church fathers, and what these men were was when the emperor came uh, to follow Jesus, when he made the decision to follow Jesus, this is the most powerful person in the world at the time, made a decision, I'm going to follow Jesus. And in order to have other people follow Jesus, he said, our religion for our country is now Christianity, or this thing, Jesus. And so people were forced to be Christians, and as a result, there was no more persecution for people that declared Jesus as Lord. And there was this group of early fathers, these, these men within the church that thought, this is wrong. This is not right. We're no longer being persecuted for our faith. And so what they decided to do is, we are going to retreat uh, to the desert of Egypt. And they spent years in solitude and in silence listening to the Holy Spirit, praying that the Spirit would give them wisdom to know how they were to live in this culture. And when they went back, they had these sayings and these words of wisdom that, that blew people away because of their time spent in solitude and silence. And one of the things that this man named St. Anthony said, you can study St. Anthony, he said, my biggest fear for Christians is that we forget that we need to swim against the that in everything, we're just kind of going along with what's going on around us. And, and this is one of the reasons that we are part of this church family. And so this is your first time coming to church. This is the last time you'll come to church for the first time. Because we don't go to church, we are the church. We're a group of people that love Jesus. That desire to share him with other people, no matter what that, how, that, how that might make us look. No matter what people might think about us for that. Because at the end of the day, everything that we spend our time doing on this earth will fade and will be no more. The only thing that will last is Jesus Christ. And what he stood for. And what he was all about. 
That's actually like really ridiculous to think about, that in everything that you do in your week, if not for the glory of God, and, and you can work, and you can have your jobs, and you can do it for the glory of God, desiring to bring Jesus into what you do. But if you're doing it for yourself, if you're doing it for your own desires, if you're doing it even for the satisfaction of life, then you're doing it for the wrong thing, and that will fade. And what's amazing is that the things that often we believe are the way, is the way that we live, right? It's not enough simply just to say you believe something and not actually live it. For example, I care more about fashion than I do human rights. Now that sounds appalling. But if I'm being honest, I care more about fashion than I do human rights. I can say that I'm all for human rights. I can say I'm all for fair trade things. But if I'm not actually willing to sacrifice some of these things, even for more of what it would cost, I'm actually saying, no, and actually, in essence, I care more about this than I do this. It's not enough to say you believe something. You have to live it. And so the greatest way that we can see that in somebody else, and I know that that feels a little bit uncomfortable. I know that. But I don't believe it's my job or the church's job to simply watch us all get swept away in this current of life, forgetting the fact that we have been saved from something to something, and that thing is Jesus Christ. So, that's all I kind of wanted to introduce. It was just on my heart, so I hope you're, you're uncomfortable a little bit, because it certainly made me uncomfortable when the Holy Spirit was like, hey Matt, this is something in your life you've got to look at. Oh, and I want you to mention it to the church family. So, um, there we go. We're going to jump into Mark 3 now. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, please get them out. Um, if you don't bring your Bibles, please bring them. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give one to you. That would be like the best gift that we as a church family could ever give you. We will give you a solid ESV study Bible. So when you're at home, you can study it yourself. You can know what it says and uh, understand what it is that God wants to speak to us. This is this is the true Word of God. There's a lot of work out there that's being done to rip this thing apart and to misinterpret it. And so my prayer is that when we come together, that by me teaching you straight from the Word of God, that you have a desire to read God's Word. Okay, so that's why we study the Bible. I don't study the Bible and I don't teach the Bible um, for the sole purpose of glorifying myself. I teach the Bible so hopefully... Uh, we can learn what is actually God wants to tell us, and then also so maybe you'll have a passion of Because I've heard multiple people come into our gatherings, and they said, I really love that you just, like, take the Bible, you read it, and explain it. That, I've, I've never heard of that before. And I'm like, what? What do you mean? They're like, no, like, this is like the only church I've ever been to that, like, took the Bible, opened it, and explained it. That's a shame. So may we pray for the, the global church that we be people of the word. Because I think if we don't teach it, we're in essence saying it needs to be supplemented with other material that I can come up with. So let's truly study this word. Uh, thank you to Jeff Hesselink, who's not here, but everyone can say thank you, Jeff Hesselink. He talked a few weeks ago, and he did not have the easiest passage in the world to speak on. So he did a good job uh, opening up the word and preaching from there. You'll also notice, if you have been following, we did, we did skip a couple of passages. My apologies for that. That was my own uh, fumbling, but hopefully you can go back and, and catch up on those. Let me just pray before we start. Heavenly Father, Jesus, we, we want to be all about you. We don't want to just like kind of live this life going from thing to thing and forgetting that, Lord, we are needing to swim against the current. Satan 
into our world is winning. He's taking over. And God, we, we don't say that believing that you've lost because you've won. So in the end of the day, you will win. But Jesus, I pray that we would be people that don't just kind of go along with things, but actually stand up for what is right and stand up for your word no matter what it might cost us. Jesus, I thank you that you set forth that example for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so what we've been doing is studying through the book of Mark, and I showed this to you a couple weeks ago. Shoot, I'm sorry. I always forget that we have drums. Uh, but this is, in essence, breaking down the, the book of Mark. Uh, chapters 1 to 8 is the king is here, and his name is Jesus. That's, like, really the theme. The second part um, is the king is here, but he's not the kind of king that you're expecting. He's not He's not the kind of king that you've been, like, interpreting falsely. Some of all of us, what we've understood this, all have an understanding of who Jesus is why Jesus did the things that he did. And what we need to understand is that many of the conclusions that we come up to about Jesus are probably wrong. Uh, every time I read a new portion of scripture about Jesus and what he said, it blows me away. And I'm like, whoa, I've got all wrong again. Because we all try to put it in this little box. So what we're figuring out as we go through here is who is this king and who is it that I'm serving? Now we're still in, in chapters 2 to 3, which you can't see here, but the overall theme is authority. Uh, what Mark's trying to do is break down, this is the authority that Jesus has. The authority he has over demons, the authority he has over healing, to heal people. This is who this king is. He's incredible, okay? Now the section of passage that we're going to be looking at today is called a Markin Sandwich. Alright, does everyone say Markin Sandwich? Markin Sandwich. What Mark does, and this has actually been picked up in literature of today, is he starts with one story then puts another story in between it, and then come back, comes back and completes the first story that he started. It's amazing. So all of us probably have read a book before where one story picks up, another one's put in between, and then the, uh, the story continues later on. Um, this is how most books are written nowadays. But this is called the Markin Sandwich. Uh, the first part is verses 20 to 21, which is the rejection by Jesus' family. The middle of the sandwich is rejection by Jewish leaders, which is verses 22 to 30. And then the bottom of the sandwich, we're going back to rejection by Jesus' family. Alright, so this is a Markin sandwich. It's a technique that he uses in his writing style that's pretty awesome. So, uh, starting from there, we're going to work through this line by line. And uh, we're going to take some lessons and truths from stories and the word of Jesus in the according to the Gospel of Mark. So Mark 3, verse 20. says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. Uh, this is he, this is Jesus, that has gone home. Uh, some scholars believe that where he's going home from is his hillside ministry, and now he's going to his home ministry. As we learned a number of weeks back, Jesus' home, what was considered as his home, was Capernaum and the house of Peter. And I even showed you a picture of the relic of Jesus' old home, where it was that he kind of called his center, his center of ministry. So Jesus comes home to house life rather than hill life. He's been away for some time, and he's looking for some time of leisure. Okay? Jesus got tired. Jesus got tired like you and I did because he was a man. He was human. And so this specifically what Mark's referring to is he went home for some leisure time. Alright? We all need good leisure time. And the home for Jesus, as I said, was the home of Peter. We read then that the crowd gathered against that they could not even eat. Alright? So this is what the passage is telling us. Jesus is going from hell life to home life to spend some time leisurely relaxing, and people come again. 
Right? Jesus cannot stay away from people. They come again, so much so that Jesus couldn't even leisure and have a meal because there were so many people coming around him. Alright? This is just like this weird little detail that Mark decides to include us in on. There's so many people there. Jesus wanted to just rest, relax, have time of leisure, but he couldn't even eat because there were so many people coming around. If I was Jesus, I'd be like, come on, guys, just leave me alone. Leave me alone, I don't want to do this. So here's a couple of points that we can make about even just this first verse. Is enjoy, Jesus enjoyed being home. Alright? We need to enjoy as a people. If we're to understand who Jesus is, and he's showing us how to live, we've got to enjoy our home life. So many of us are constantly trying to be away from home, to avoid leisure, especially in our world that's so busy. But Jesus, if we want to be like Jesus, we'll follow his example by enjoying being at home, enjoying that rest, enjoying that leisure, enjoying that moment of maybe just sitting on the couch and being like, ah. or a day like today, being on our porches or wherever we uh, call home and just enjoying it or going for a walk. Jesus enjoyed that stuff, and so we must enjoy that stuff as well. And this is a point that I'm making constantly, but Jesus attracts the crowds. Jesus continues to draw crowds. People are stoked about him. They've never heard or seen a man do the things that Jesus is doing. And they're so they're stoked. They come to see him. Even though he's trying to be leisureless or leisurely, they still come and see Jesus. They don't want to stay away. Now the question that I'm forced to ask myself is, does the life I live draw a crowd? Does the life you live draw people away from what they're doing to come and see what is it about this person that is so different? As I said at the beginning, if we're going with the current of culture, you're not going to be looking questionable. Uh, I was at a conference a couple weeks ago, and the guy's teaching was, he was like, Christians need to be people that live questionable lives. If you're not somebody that someone kind of says, that's really different the way that they did that, you're not going to have a very strong witness for Jesus Christ. A lot of us have talked about evangelism before, and uh, this teacher wrote down this passage on evangelism. He says, not all of us are called to be bold, proclaiming evangelists. So for the introverted people in this room, this should be good news for you. Right? Like, I don't have to be there as somebody that kind of goes and takes the big word, the big message to people. No. But pray for those people. But what you are expected to do as you read in other portions of Scripture is be willing and able to give a response for the difference that is within you. So this means you've got to be living a questionable enough life that people are like, what is it about you that's so different? That people then ask that, and so then you can say, well, let me tell you about Jesus. It's like when somebody like falls in love for the first time, right? And they're just like blown away, like, oh, right? And there's something noticeably different about them. What is going on with you? I remember after Audrey and I's first date, I went back home, went to my home church at the time in Tilsonburg, and somebody the next morning was like, you can't stop smiling. And I'm like, I met her. <laughs> I met a lady, the woman of my dreams. And they're like, really? Tell us more about her. And that's what it should be like when we interact and when we've been moved by the person of Jesus. We can't help but talk to him about other people. So does the life you live draw a crowd? Because it certainly did for Jesus. Verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Woo-hoo. Now this family that we're referring to is those, family here, the Greek word means those from the side of him. So this is his literal family. His mother and brothers will find out later. His kinspeople. 
Uh, verse 31 mentions that it's Jesus' family, so this is most likely from them. Now, his family is from Nazareth, okay? And heard it mean, it does not refer to verse 20, but instead means that they've having heard referring to his entire Galilean ministry. So everything that we've read so far up in the book of Mark, Jesus' family, his mother, has heard about it. His siblings have heard about it. And so they come to get him, okay? Now, Nazareth, there's a map of Galilee. Uh, Jesus is in Capernaum, top of the Sea of Galilee. Nazareth is in between the A and the L of the big word Galilee. Now, the distance for them to travel is 64 kilometers, okay? And they did not have cars. So when they heard that Jesus is doing these things, they had a purpose. It says they went out. So they left Nazareth to go find Jesus. It says that they wanted to go seize him, which is the Greek word kriteo which means to seize, get possession of, to become master of, to take hold of. They were intending to take him by force and against his will. Jesus' family. This guy, Jesus, is crazy. He's out of his mind, which is existemi, which means to throw out of position to this place, to amaze, astonish, throw into wonderment. They're basically saying Jesus has been thrown out of his mind, and he is beside oneself. He is, in fact, insane. So his family is going to travel that 64 kilometers, take Jesus against his will, get him to come home with them, and tell him to smarten up. So what ends up happening is that's the beginning of our sandwich. We don't find out the end until we get down to verse 31. But here's some points we can make about this and Jesus' family. Very simply, people thought Jesus was insane. People thought he was ridiculous. Uh, And so once again, does the life you live cause people to create theories? Everybody had a theory about Jesus. Who is this guy? Imagine going and watching the news tonight, and this person, this Jesus, is being like plastered all across the news. Every single person would create a theory about who this guy is. What's all about? What what do you think? Like, for you and I, we maybe now talk a little bit about politics because there's a political thing going on right now, and I've had a number of conversations this week about some of the things that Trudeau has said, some of the things that other people are saying, and everybody has a theory about Trudeau. Everybody has a theory about all of these different things. What would your theory be about Jesus? Because the theory of Jesus' family at this time was he's insane. The closest people to Jesus from the first 30 years of his life are like, he's insane. He's ridiculous. So does the life you live cause people to question? And uh, uh, that's literally my second point as well, is that Jesus' family thought he was insane. He is cuckoo. And so they go out to try to take him, to seize him, and bring him back home. We'll continue that part as Mark will continue. Verse 22. This is some other people who thought Jesus was rather insane as well. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Zalbelzebul. Beelzebul, whatever it is. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. Now, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, uh, this would mean that the local Pharisees, who had religious watch and religious authority over the place in Capernaum, probably sent word to the Jerusalem authorities that there's a guy named Jesus who's doing ridiculous, crazy things. He's casting out demons. He's healing people. He's, there's withered hands going on. He's doing things on the Sabbath, stuff he shouldn't be doing. So these scribes travel. And uh, here's another map. Just how far is Capernaum from Jerusalem? Okay, so Jerusalem's down there by the Dead Sea. They're traveling all the way up to Capernaum. So the distance from Jerusalem to Capernaum is 193 kilometers. All right, and again, they don't have vehicles. They're traveling there, probably most likely by foot. 
to get hold of this. Who is this guy, Jesus? This is a problem. And what they were saying is he's possessed by Beelzebul, which is an implication that Beelzebul has him. He's possessed by a demon. People thought Jesus was demonically possessed. And Beelzebul, what that means is really Satan. Alright? So he's possessed by Satan. And now they're trying to create theories about how he did it by being possessed by Satan. And they say by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So they're saying, by the power of Satan, Jesus is casting out Satan and his demonic forces and other people. Alright? This is the popular theory. And these scribes are trying to let other people know that this Jesus is not who he says he is. In fact, the proper theory is that he's demonically possessed and he's casting out demons as a demon himself. Alright? This is what people thought. Um, Now, what are some points we can make, make about this? Number one... Uh, word of Jesus travels. Okay? Word of Jesus travels. It goes. If God and Jesus are doing a work in our midst, the word will travel. Um, every now and then when I'm walking throughout Guelph or seeing different people, people often say to me, they say, I'm, I'm hearing really good things about Church of the Lord. I'm like, really? Yes. I'm hearing good things about Church of the Lord. I'll go somewhere else. And somebody else say, hey, I'm hearing really cool things about this person and, and what God's doing in their life for Church of the Lord. Like, oh, cool. Yeah, we're not. I'll go somewhere else. Hey, I've heard about this. Uh, as we know, in December, Church of the Lord, uh, in essence, made the front page of the Gulf Mercury. Right? Word of Jesus travels. When Jesus is doing a work, the word of it travels, and people want to come see what it's all about. But once again, that's a challenge to us in that if we're not tuning into what Jesus is up to, then people won't come. If this is just something that's mandated, people will not come. If this is something that Jesus is doing a work in, word of him will travel, and people will come. Um, let's continue on. I'm going to skip the next uh, slide and points because, as we all know, we've got soccer today, and so we're going to keep going so we can get to soccer and have time for it. So we're not all sitting here watch time. Uh, and he called them unto him and said to them a parable. So Jesus knows what these scribes are saying. They're kind of intermixing with the group of people. Jesus knows what their theory is. It says, Come on over here. I want to talk to you. You think I'm demon possessed? Let me show you what's really up. Alright, that's what he's saying here. So he called them unto them. Jesus invites them to come with him and talk in distance, that he may reason the matter with them. And in parables, a parable really means this parabello. And what it means is to throw alongside. So a parable is a concrete illustration thrown alongside of a truth to explain it. So Jesus wants to show them that, hey, this is the truth, and help you understand this truth, you're kind of dumb because you think I'm satanic. Um, I'm actually going to also try to explain this to you using some stories. Alright, so he calls them unto himself. The first thing he says is this, in verse 23. How can Satan cast out Satan? So let's walk through this. The word how is post in Greek, and it means how is it possible how is it possible? Like, why would Satan cast out Satan? Uh, Jesus is declaring the impossibility of Satan, casting out Satan. It is not as much a question of super strength, but more of motive. And Satan would have no desire at all to operate against himself. Like, how is it possible? Like, why would Satan do that? So Jesus initially starts with just the completely obvious. Why would he do that? He would have no motivation to cast himself out. If he's winning in somebody's life, why would Satan then go and cast him out? That's ridiculous. You guys are idiots. Except he doesn't say you're idiots. Verse 24. He then says, now he's illustrating it, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. 
That's what he means. If Satan were battling himself, his kingdom would be crumbling. Like, if Satan is really, let's think about the logic here, scribes. If he's battling against himself, he's not going to win at the end of the day. Why would you go out to war when there's a civil war going on back home? That would be ridiculous. You're going to lose. Because you're taking some of your forces off the field and using them back home. So he's just pointing out the obvious. Verse 25. More obvious. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If you are a family unit, right? Think of your family unit just flesh-wise. If a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. Are you going to be a strong family unit if the family starts breaking apart in the middle of it? We see this in our culture nowadays, right? The family is falling apart. Probably because there's a lot of stuff going on within that family dynamic that's affecting the larger family. So Jesus just simply says, if a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. Verse 26. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So in summary of these three verses, Jesus is essentially saying, the theory in question is futile because it is not gratuitously to be imputed to any rational agents, to a kingdom, to a house, and therefore not to Satan. Your theory is ridiculous. It makes no logical sense, is what he's saying. Verse 27, Jesus continues, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Uh, This word plunder or spoil is the word diarpazo, which means to thoroughly ransack. The word bind is the Greek word deo, which means to tie, to make secure by tying. So therefore, Satan must be bound before his sphere of power may be challenged. So this is what Jesus is saying. Because Jesus has already cast out Satan. Jesus is saying, I am the strong man. I have bound up Satan. And because I have bound him up, that's how I'm casting him out. Like, for example, if you were to go to your neighbor's house today, don't do this. But you were to go to your neighbor's house today, big, strong person, and you were going to try to ransack their house and take their stuff. What would you? What would be your first thing that you need to take out? The person, right? If the person's gone, you can go in there and take all their stuff. If the person's still there, they're going to try to stop you. Jesus is saying the exact same thing. If Satan is like free reigning in that house, and I try to go in, remove the demons, he's going to put up a fight. But if I bind him first, then I can go in and cast him out, take whatever I want. Again, Jesus is making a very logical point here. Uh, Jesus is saying, what you are suggesting makes no logical sense. And then he continues, because as if the logic wasn't enough, here's what he's going to do next. Verse 28 to 30. Truly, I say to you, all sins, this is what, like, I'm going to explain this, and you're going to be like, these people are ridiculous. Uh, Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Jesus is declaring forgiveness over sin here. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Uh, One commentary I read says this, Jesus now changes his tone. Thus far he has reasoned with the scribes, now he solemnly warns them. You do not believe your own theory. You know as well as I as I do how absurd it is, and that I must be casting out devils by a different spirit from Beelzebub. 
You are therefore not merely mistaken theorists. You are men in a very perilous moral condition. What these scribes are basically saying is, they are saying that the work of the Holy Spirit is the work of Satan. They are mocking the Holy Spirit, in essence. Because blaspheme is the Greek word blasphemio. Say that to your neighbor. Blasphemio. To speak reproachfully, to rail at, revile, calumniate, malicious misrepresentation, used specifically of those by contemptuous speech, intentionally coming short of reverence due to God. And this is attributed to the scribes who, knowing Jesus was performing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, attribute them to Satan for the purpose of breaking the testing power of Jesus. They were more concerned with how they were looking than what Jesus was doing, and they were willing to reproachfully uh, take down and blame the Holy Spirit for what Satan was, they thought Satan was doing. Complete disrespect. Do we understand that? What they were doing here? So Jesus, in essence, is saying, you guys are ridiculous, and let me just remind you, if you continue doing that, what you're doing is unforgivable. You're now mocking God, who we believe is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Trinitarian view of God. This is what somebody said, says later. Uh, if a person persistently attributes to Satan what is accomplished by the power of God, that is, if one makes a flagrant, willful, decisive judgment that the Spirit's testimony about Jesus is satanic, then such a person never has forgiveness. And someone else has said, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit demotes the conscious and deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God released through Jesus' word and act. These guys are playing upon very, very negative ground and territory. So what can we take from these verses? Number one, and this is very, very powerful and very, very important, is that Jesus has bound up Satan. As we talked about a couple of months ago, Satan and his demons are in our world. They are making war and waging war against Jesus and his kingdom. And they want nothing more than to attack your life, bring it down, discourage you, make you anxious, have anxiety, get depressed, and turn away from God. The glory of God and through the victory of Jesus means that he has been bound up. So we have complete authority over those things, which means... If you are feeling like you're being influenced by demonic activity, we can declare Jesus over your life and in his authority cast out those demons because he is bound up Satan. Notice we wouldn't be able to bind him up nor cast him out if he wasn't first taken down or tied down. Jesus has bound up Satan. When he rose from the grave, he was declaring victory over Satan. Death did not have him. He came back to life. Which means, if you are struggling with anxiety, if you are struggling with depression, if you are experiencing battling of the mind, you can receive victory over your sin through Jesus Christ, and only through Jesus Christ. So at the end of our time today, while we're taking communion, you want prayer, and you want people to declare this over you. Come up, receive prayer, and we believe that through the power of Jesus, those demons and those influences can be cast out of you. What is needed more in our culture nowadays than this sort of deliverance from demonic activity? More than ever before. And may we be also warned and cautious that when we, as our people, say that the works of God are actually not the works of God, we are walking upon places that also blaspheme, like these, like these scribes were. May we give glory to God and honor and glory that's due in his name. Notice what Jesus does here as well. He speaks with authority. 
Uh, Jesus does not speak on the authority on others' authority. He has the authority. He is God, and He does what He does, and His will speak truth when truth is needed. Notice Jesus doesn't just kind of give the logical answer and then kind of like slump away. He's like, no. You want to keep doing what you're doing? This is what you're actually saying. Watch it. Three, Jesus forgives all sin. Notice how he points that out. Jesus forgives your sin. Those sins will be forgiven, but if you continue walk down that line, you may not be in that specific area. Next, God, which is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, will not be mocked. Okay? This is the fear of the Lord that the Bible talks about. He will not be mocked, so may we not mock Him. And then finally, Jesus offers grace. Notice that the way in which He says this to the scribes is almost as that of a warning. Right? He doesn't completely just like push them off. He says, hey, before you actually continue to spread this rumor, may I remind you of what you're doing, and if you want to be forgiven for this, you should stop it. So in the same way of saying, this is what you're doing, he's also saying, but I'll forgive you. Come to me. Believe I am who I say I am, and I won't continue putting you in that category. Alright, let's continue on. The bottom of the Merkin sandwich, verses 31 to 35. Continues, picks up. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. So Mark resumes the story which he started, and Cain is the Greek word erkomai, which means literally to come, and standing outside, they sent him and called him. So picture a mother and brother standing outside, believing Jesus is out of his mind, and wanting him to take him home. They were unwilling to say what they wanted, so instead they sent word uh, that they wanted to speak to him. Okay, so they arrive at the home. They're standing outside. They don't want to tell somebody, could you go get Jesus because we want to take him home now. They just say, hey, could you let Jesus know that his mom and brothers are here and we want to talk to him? Then for the purpose of, gotcha, Jesus, let's go. <laughs> right, as if he wasn't going to put up a fight. This is the scene. In verse 32, and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mothers and brothers are outside seeking you. Uh, around is the Greek word peri, and it means about, and circle or circumference. So imagine Jesus, he's in this house, there's a circle or circumference of these people gathered around him, listening to him. And in the midst of this, Jesus teaching, Jesus uh, loving on people, Jesus showing and, and showing grace, Jesus just finishing this thing with the scribes, like everyone's like, whoa, he just like totally dissed the scribes. In the midst of all of that, this word comes in, oh, your, your family's here, they want to talk to you. Verse 33 to 35 says this. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, who are my mother and brothers? This is kind of harsh, right? His family has just traveled 64 kilometers to see him. And Jesus been like, weekly talk to him? And he's now saying, who are my mothers and my brothers? Now, it comes off as harsh, but Jesus undoubtedly knows what they have come for. Alright? He's like, did he just come 64 kilometers to say hi? He knows. They probably heard that I'm a bit insane. That's what everyone else is saying. So if I go outside, I know what they're going to try to do. So, no thanks, guys. Now, this is radical in a traditional patriarchal culture where blood is seen as thicker than water or any other substance. Jesus' challenge to the traditional authority structures of Palestine society is now complete. What he's in essence 
He's really just doing something completely ridiculous, completely out of the norm. It was normal for children to live close to their parents. So the fact that Jesus is already 64 kilometers away is like completely weird. Maybe even in the same house as them. Um, this family was often the same business unit. So we read in the scriptures that Jesus was a carpenter. He contributed to the family business. Um, other thing is that loyalty to family was the local and specific outworking of loyalty to Israel. So if you stay with your family, you're also staying loyal to your heritage, to the history of the Israelite people. And one's personal identity was basically the member of a group. One's family was one's life. The words family and life are used interchangeably in the Old Testament. So when you read the Old Testament and you read something about family, sometimes what the writers of the Old Testament will do is just will switch in, this is your life. So your family and life are interchangeable. So by Jesus saying, who are my brothers and my sisters? He's in an essence kind of denying his earthly family, which at that point would be like, what the heck are you doing? What are you saying? You are, in fact, insane. And looking about at those around him, he looks about at those around him, he gave an encircled them. It's almost like an inclusive look. And this is what he says, whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and my sister and my brothers. Now this will of God, as we know in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus will teach his disciples um, to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So our lives, if we're pursuing the glory of God and what he wants on this earth, we are pursuing the will of God. So Jesus says, if that is the purpose of a person, these people are my brothers, my sister, and my mothers. Um, which our heart must go out to Mary a little bit, right? She's traveled 64 kilometers, and Jesus is kind of standing there saying, Thanks for coming, but um, I'm actually spending time with people that this is my new family. And if you want the will of God to go forward, you'll understand what it is that I'm doing here. And this is more important right now than me coming out there and you seizing me and taking me home. All right, so what is this in essence telling us um, and what can we learn? Number one, God's will above man's will. All right, Jesus says, God's will, his desires over man's will. Your will is to take me home. My will, what God has given me to do, is to take the message of him to the world, the message of myself, and that's my number one priority. I'm sorry, I can't come say hi right now. There's other things that are far more important right now than you trying to take me home. So God's will over man's will, which is a certain challenge to us in our culture. Are we going to do what man wants us to do or do what God wants us to do? Uh, the decision that Paul and Taylor made last Sunday, that was a God's will decision. That was not a man's will. And we've got to be praying for them that the friends and um, people that they hang out with will understand what it is that they did last Sunday. Because for other people, it's like, why would you do that? But that's man's will, and we believe that we need to be pursuing God's will over man's will. Um, the second point is that Jesus has ushered in a new vision for the family. Alright? This is why, on basically everything Church of the Lord, as far as like printable material, as far as the emails that I send you, we're constantly saying, hey family, welcome home. Because this is our new family for the body of Christ. Many of us have been hurt by what was our traditional family. Many of us have been hurt by what our um, upbringings did to us. When you become a follower of Jesus, you are welcomed into your new family. These are the people that should love and care for you and everything that is up for. Now, this does not mean that we dishonor our parents. This does not mean that we dishonor our upbringing. But we desire, and the greater responsibility is being part of the family that truly wants to see God's will in our lives and in the lives of other people. So it might seem like God, like Jesus was dishonoring his family, but by honoring God above his family, what he was in fact doing was saying, was honoring his family because he chose God's will 
over man's will. Now, in conclusion, the gospel and allegiance to Jesus produces a division, often an unexpected and unwelcome one, and in every group or society where they make their way. Mark's call to his readers then and now is to stick with Jesus, whatever the cost. That's essentially what he's saying. There might be division in your family over Jesus. There might be division over family about what people are saying about you. There might be division over who other people say that I am. Now, other places in Scripture command us to not distance ourselves completely from our family, but also to remember, in the words of Jesus here, that we have another family as well, that we are to love and honor and respect and to cherish. So here's just three questions I want us to consider as we read this, and then as we transition to communion. Um, number one is, who is Jesus? All right, We've been asking this question from the very beginning. Who is this Jesus? Okay, Is he possessed by Satan? Um, as you've heard me say before, C.S. Lewis said, Jesus was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was in fact Lord. C.S. Lewis started out his life as an atheist and then converted to Christianity. Who is he? He was either a liar because he was doing these things, he's a lunatic like the scribes and everyone else told him he was, or he was in fact Lord. He is Jesus. He is the Son of God who came to save the world. We're part of that restoration uh, and secondly, will you continue the disciple task? Imagine being one of Jesus' disciples and sitting there, and now the word about you is traveling, that you're traveling, that you're following the satanic teacher. Now, what I personally believe in, as I interpret from our culture, is that there are people in our world that think we're ridiculous because we follow Jesus. Uh, the guy that washes the floors in here said to me earlier that there are actually, um, they're probably starting in Canada, but there's actually atheist churches now. So you can go on a, on a Sunday or whenever they do their thing, and you can worship the God of self, essentially is what they're doing. And their teachings are mocking Christians. Their teachings are trying to disprove the existence of God. Their teachings and their songs are all about satanic worship, whether they recognize it or not, because it's not honoring God, it's honoring Satan, the powers of darkness. So when you and I are called by God to follow him and be disciples of Jesus, are we willing to take up the discipleship task? of following him no matter the cost. Even at times when it might cost us some division in our families because of the decisions that we're going to make. Are we willing to follow him? So are you willing to take up the disciple task? And then thirdly, who is your family? The beautiful thing about the Christian community is that we are adopted by our Father God and therefore we are all brothers and sisters. Like, you don't just sit here today with another group of people that subscribe to some of the same teachings you do. You sit beside people who are loved by the same Father and are a part of the same family. One of my favorite things about going to places like Peru or other countries and being part of worship services is looking like across the room at these Peruvians who are singing the praise praise to God's name and we're all singing to the same Father. And right now they're meeting in their, their places and we're meeting in the Bible. It's amazing. And we're all brothers and sisters. Who is your family? And as Jesus will say, says the will, the people that do the will of the Father is this new family. This is the new community. And remember, in a patriarchal society in which traditional family is glorified and magnified, Jesus is saying something that's rather ridiculous here. It would be as ridiculous as like what we would see as like a Muslim or someone um, who believes in different faith coming to know Jesus and therefore must distance themselves from their family because they can be killed for coming to know Jesus Christ. 
Now, does that mean that you don't make the decision to follow Jesus because your family might kill you? Is Jesus worth it? For many of us, this is a lot easier because we've come to know Christ and our family's not going to go and shoot us and kill us. But there are people in our world that when they give their lives over to Jesus, they are saying goodbye to their physical family. Why? Because the will of the Father is much more important than the will of that family. Now, what we're going to do this morning, I'll invite the band to come up, and uh, we're going to sing some songs together to close this off. But typically when we take communion with one another, we do it in groups. And I think that's great. But then I think there's also an opportunity that we have when we take communion to do it in, in more of a personal way, in a personal reflection way. So this is what I want you to do this morning. As I've said before, communion is reserved for people that have said, Jesus Christ, you are in fact who you say you are. And through thanksgiving and praise to you, I'm going to remember what you did on the cross for me. As the Apostle Paul would say, not taking it for those reasons is like mocking exactly what Jesus did. So when we take communion, we don't just, oh man, the bread got stuck in my teeth. Like, oh shoot, now I've got to drink this. And like, Enough that tastes weird. No, we're celebrating what it is that Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. This is remembrance, and essentially it's a celebration. A lot of times communion is taken rather solemnly, and that's fine, but it's also a celebration. So as we take today, we're going to sing three songs to close our time together today. Um, we're going to start with the song Oceans, which the bridge of this verse, of this song, is just so powerful. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Ridiculous. And we're going to sing such a thing. May we be people that swim against the current of everything else going on around us and truly follow who Jesus says he was and is. So when you're ready, when you've come to the Lord and you've repented, repentance is to change your way of thinking and to go back to the way it was in the garden. When you've been reminded of who he is, you can come forward and thank him. Return to your seat. Stand. Sing. Um, we're trying to create a culture here of singing, too. I know singing is kind of awkward. The only times we really do it is at hockey games or birthday parties. Um, as a culture, but we as believers, as Christians, people have been singing for years the praises. The very first worship song ever written was when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. It was the song of Moses, and they lifted up their praise to God. So from that point in creation till now, people have been singing. So um, this is not just something that we do routinely. This is a beautiful thing to say. Thank you, Jesus, for what you're up to. So let me pray, and the man will start playing. We'll do our thing. As soon as we finish those songs, we'll just say, time's done. And then we really need everybody to contribute to get everything packed up as quickly as possible. And we're putting it all in our new trailer. So it's amazing. It's going to be so much fun um, to be doing that and to, uh, to pack up there with our stuff. So let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for what you're doing. I thank you for what you're up to. And Jesus, I thank you that you didn't just go along. And Jesus, I pray that we would not be people that think you're insane. I mean, certainly the things you did were radical. God, were subversive. But Jesus, I pray that we would not be divided. But Jesus, that we would not be like this house divided. Believing, Jesus, that what you're doing was satanic. Jesus, what you did was through the power of the Holy Spirit and the same authority and power that that you use to cast out those demons, Jesus, is the same power and authority that you give us when we enter into a relationship with you. So Jesus, we just pray that as we sing now that we be reminded of who you are, what you've done, and we can celebrate who it is that we worship. Not some satanic, possessed man that lived 2,000 years ago, but a man completely empowered by the Holy Spirit, the Son of God. Thank you, Jesus, we love you.